author of the story. Storyteller. Living word. Would you speak to us this morning? Would you help us to hear you? And I pray that as we walk through the story of Scripture, that in a meaningful way we would hear it afresh. We'd be recaptured by it. And that you would meet us in our own stories with your great story. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you are new, we have spent the last 50 weeks and 35 sermons <laughs> walking through the great story of Scripture. We started in Genesis 1. Last week, we ended with Revelation 22. In the midst of this, I've been writing a dissertation, and it occurred to me this morning, why didn't I just make that my dissertation? I would have saved myself a whole lot of effort. Um, but we've got, we've got 35 sermons in, and uh, essentially we started this journey a year ago not because we needed a year-long sermon series. We didn't. That's typically not what we do, in fact. Um, but instead, it was because we wanted to answer a question, and the question was, what does it mean to be a Christian? And, and this has been our attempt at speaking to that question. Of course, it's not a comprehensive answer. Of course, there are many ways you can answer that question. But we wanted, in the way of the parish to get our heads wrapped around what does it look like to lean into the story of Jesus and then to wrap our lives around that story. And so this has been our attempt at building a spiritual theology catechism, uh, which simply means teaching or, or training. It's the way of understanding what this Christian life is all about. And if we ask the question, what does it mean to be a Christian, the best way I know how to speak to that is simply to tell the story. And so we've been walking through the five acts of a big enough story starting in Genesis all the way through Revelation, breaking it apart into these five acts to see how God is coming to us through it. There are times that we need to zoom in on a passage, to do a Bible study, to tear apart a passage, to, to look at it in detail, to analyze it, to uh, understand it in its original languages, all of those things. But there are other times that what we really need is to pull way, way, way back, to zoom out, to get the bird's eye view, to go to 50,000 feet, and to see the whole thing at a meta level, to see the story's arc and trajectory and curvature the way an astronaut can see the curvature of Earth only from space. That's what we've been trying to do with this story, is to zoom out and to see its great and tenacious themes. Because there are themes of this story that just keep coming back, and it's because God is the storyteller, and because God is going to see his story through. And so we want to find that the story shapes us as we are catechized to it, as we wrap our lives around it, as we orbit our calendars and our priorities and our practices and our postures around this story. And so Christianity is a story about the creation and telos of all things. It is a true story, I believe, but it is a story. It's a story about how this world got its start and where this world is going. That word telos in Greek uh, simply means ending or, or completion. It is the fulfillment, the consummation. It is the aim to which the story has been pointing this whole time. And all stories, all ideologies, all narratives, all ways of being in the world have a particular telos in mind. There is a reason 
that the narrative is framed a certain way and it's because it's trying to drive us toward a certain end. And so whenever we take on a story, we take on not only that story, but also its underlying means and its underpinning aim. Where is it trying to get us? And there are some who try to take on the Christian story but reject its means and its ends. You know, often we do this one way or the other. There are some who try to take on the Christian story's values but reject its telos, right? This looks like trying to build the good life, a flourishing life, a whole life, a virtuous life, but ultimately opt out of where the story lands us, which is the kingship of Jesus, right? And we try to find a way to get all of that life, but, but maybe just tweak the end of the story to where I can still be king. Others of us, and this is far more often the sin of the church, we try to take on the Christian story's ends but disavow its means, right? Oh, I believe in the great King Jesus. I just don't really want to walk in the way of its kingdom, right? Or I want Jesus to be called the Prince of Peace, but I'm going to treat as optional the things Jesus said make for that peace. And we try to create the end of the story through our own means, But if we're going to opt into this story and wrap our lives around it, we have to say yes to the means and the ends. And for a long time, this was the only story in town, the only story being told. It was the story that you found when you get to the hotel room and you pull out the drawer. There's there's this story, right, in the Bible. It's the story that when you go to the center of our society and you place your hand on something in order to swear that you'll tell the truth and uphold your vows, this is the story that you placed that vow on. This was the story that Gutenberg deemed best to print the first thing out of, right? This story placed itself at the center of our society, but now we live in a time where there are rival stories all around us, and they compete for the imaginations of our lives. And the rival stories are these subtle, different ways of telling the story. For example, there is a story in our world that tells us that our well-being, our flourishing, and the good life is our birthright. But there is an opposition to what we have coming for us, and it's coming to steal and kill and destroy. But good news, there is a Messiah. There is a salvation And it's going to save the day. So share this great hope on every social media channel and on signs and on street corners. Rehearse it through your communal practices. And the story is this. All will be well if we give our lives to capitalism or nationalism or racism or materialism or humanism or liberalism or conservatism. Rival stories are gospel stories. They are telling us a version of good news. And often so subtly, we don't realize they've come to shape our lives and our lenses. And so we get to the Jesus story and we see the Jesus story through those first stories we've already pledged our allegiance to. And now we cannot take on the story on its own terms. We've been co-opted by a lesser good news. But the answer is not to fear these rival stories or see them as a hostile threat. Instead, Sam Wells, a, a theologian in London, invites us and says that these, these rival stories are actually gifts to us because they invite us to reclaim our own story, to remember our lives to it, to restore our lives around the story we have chosen. If we hear the big enough story alongside all the other stories that we hear on the news and in our algorithms, and if we choose this story afresh, that's going to help us notice where we've lost sight of what Jesus calls us to. 
where we've forgotten our own story, where we must again submit ourselves to the word. And so one final time, I want to encourage us to walk through, we're going to go through this great story, an encapsulation, a summary of it, that we might reclaim it and claim it afresh, that we might submit ourselves to it and be shaped by it afresh, that we might live our lives in the light of the healing word at the center. Not that we may master the words of this story, but that we might be mastered by the word at the center of the story. And so, because it is a great story, because it is true, there are patterns that are formed in this story. This pattern, I actually believe and contest, is true of all great stories. And and as a result, it's true of the greatest story as well. And the pattern that is at the heart of Scripture is a pattern of belovedness, wilderness, forgiveness, and wholeness. That is the sequence at the heart of Scripture, I believe. And it's not just the meta-narrative of all of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, though it is that. It's also the pattern of many of the stories told within the Scriptures. So if you look at Israel's story, you'll find it to be a story of belovedness, wilderness, forgiveness, wholeness. If you look at Jacob's story or Joseph's story, this is the pattern of Jesus. This is the pattern of the prodigal son. And it's not just the biblical pattern. I believe it's also the pattern of my life. I believe it's the pattern of your life. You may just not know it yet. But this is the true story, right? And we'll walk through it here this morning. And so as we do, I want to encourage us to keep two sets of lenses on. The one lens looking at how this pattern plays out in the great story of Scripture, but also how is this playing out in your story? Not only in the big picture of your story, but also in every particular season and circumstance you're walking through. I believe you might notice God coming to you in the moment of belovedness or wilderness or forgiveness or wholeness that you are in. So let's walk through it. First words, act one, belovedness. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered over the deep waters. And the Spirit of God was brooding over the waters, and then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that it was good. If there's any cliff notes, if there's any summary statement, if there's any microcosm of the whole sweep of the Christian story, for me, it's all encapsulated in the story of the prodigal son. The father's child will live a wild life. The father's child will find himself or herself in the far country and in need of great forgiveness. But the story starts with a blessing. The father looks at the child and says, I have a great inheritance for you. And my heart is to say, you are always with me and all that I have is yours. And so God always starts his stories with a blessing. It's just the pattern of Scripture. The opening words of the Bible that we just read here, there's something like an incantation mixed with an invocation. Let there be light, right? It's like God's like God is magic wand over the darkness. Let there be light, and there was light. And this is the Genesis word that brings all of our journeys to birth. At some point, your story, my story got its start because God said, let there be light over something that had been slumbering darkness and nothingness just a moment before, and all of a sudden, it's illuminated. We see something we couldn't see before. We're called out of darkness and toward light. And when creation starts, God speaks that belovedness word in a garden, and a dove descends over the deep. 
And then when all seems lost other than this tiny little ark floating in a flooded world, God speaks belovedness words and a dove descends with an olive branch. And when the Jesus story starts, God speaks belovedness words over Jesus at his baptism, you are my beloved child. With you I am well pleased. And a dove descends to light up the skies. And when the church's story starts, God speaks belovedness in a town square at Pentecost. And a dove descends to point the story home. This is how God starts his stories. Eden and Abraham and Israel and incarnation, epiphany, Easter, Pentecost, paradise. These are stories of creation and recreation, of blessing and benediction, of chosenness and calling. And so the pattern is clear. Belovedness gets first dibs on everything God does, including you. And yes, I know that you have sinned, and I know it matters. But at your deepest core, what God has created is most foundationally and fundamentally not depraved or debased. It is designed and delighted over. And you are sparked afire with the inextinguishable flame of the image of God at your core. And it continues to shine through the shattered lantern of your life. And so the most foundational words of our story are the Genesis 1 kind of words. This is a story that is based in words like light and blessed and beloved and good and shalom. But then, the wilderness. And we move into Act 2 and 3 where the wilderness starts to speak lesser words. It starts to speak lesser words than the belovedness words that were spoken over us. We might expect that such a blessed beginning would lead straight into the promised land. But as it was for the Israelites, it is for us. We get delivered with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. It looks like we're headed straight for Canaan, but instead, God leads his people on the wilderness road. The wilderness comes first. And if the pattern wasn't clear enough in Israel's story, which is the quintessential story of the Old Testament, God tells it again as the quintessential story of the New Testament. Jesus, spoken over at his baptism, belovedness words, and what happens immediately next? He's led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. The wilderness always follows belovedness, and in the wilderness we are surrounded by wild animals and lesser words that tempt us to live out of something less than what was just spoken over us. And the takeaway of the pattern is this, there is no way to dodge the wilderness in this life. If you follow Jesus, you will spend time in the wilderness. And if you give it time, the belovedness that was felt at first, and the clarity and the calling and the plans you had and the answers you held will eventually encounter a great disorientation. There may be profound pain or unforeseen suffering. There may be a dark night. And the belovedness that we started with now has to endure the temptations and taunts of the wilderness. And at the moment we need God most, God seems to disappear. And this is the classic witness of the saints. This is what this Christian life entails. And in the wilderness, all that was blessed in the beginning gets broken open into this crucible of transformation. And I start to wonder what, what happened to those big promises that God made happened to those words? Did I really hear them at all? And the illusion of scarcity starts to seem truer than the reality of abundance and blessing. 
And all that I hunger for apart from every word that proceeds from the mouth of God begins to be exposed in me. My appetites are exposed. I'll eat pig slop if I have to. Just let me be in charge of my journey. Right? And in the wilderness, our will and God's will collide face to face, and he calls us to put no lesser word and no lesser God before him. And we see how deep our demanding has run for this easy, successful, comfortable, pain-free life. So we start trying solutions to get out of the wilderness, right? Let me manage my sin. That's what Israel does. Let me, let me manage my sin. Or let me try to live a perfectly pure life. Surely that will get me out of this place. That doesn't work. We start to test God. That doesn't work. We just try out a different God. Let's build a golden calf. That doesn't work. We try to run back to Egypt. But after a long while in the wilderness, we start to just demand, somebody give me a vision. Somebody give me a way out of this thing. Something to re-enchant me. And the only vision we are given is a pillar of cloud and fire. In the wilderness, even God's provision is confounding. We finally spot some water, and it turns out to be bitter. We finally have some manna that falls out of the heavens, and we eat it, and we go, what was that? Which is what manna means. In the wilderness, even the food we eat feels like a question. We have no answers for a while, and we're lost. And like the prodigal, we have wandered far from the father's house. We find ourselves in the far country, and we do not know how we got here or how we're going to get home. And this is act two and three of our story. It's what happens when we grab the fruit and we're evicted from Eden. It's what happens when we get on the exodus but still end up in exile. And we've witnessed God's great deliverance, his mighty hand, his outstretched arm, but now it's been a while, so I've got to go create a golden calf, and I've got to go build a Babel tower. It's where we start killing our brothers because we've so lost the plot. It's where we find ourselves in the valley of the shadow of death. But there is one hope in the wilderness, and it's that God lives there too. We experience in the wilderness in a way we never saw coming that God actually is with us. I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. The good shepherd and the Holy Spirit know all about the wilderness, and it feels to us like we have wandered off the edge of the map, and the only thing out here are those sea monsters on the edge of the page, but God shows up there too, and in a big enough story, it is possible that we might be brought home again. And so this, then, is what the Lord says. He who created you, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through those waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep you over. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness. And we move to the third part of our pattern, act four, where the word enters the story of all the lesser words. And a way begins to be made in the wilderness. There comes a point where eventually in the story of scripture and eventually in your story and my story, we end up so stuck that we cannot save ourselves and we cannot find our way home. And there's many things that lead into the wilderness, and this is important to know. It's not just our sin. It could be our sin, but it could be an injustice done unto us. It could be a suffering or a sickness. Many ways we end up in the wilderness, but there's only one way out of the wilderness, and it's this, that something must be done 
unto us. And if you go to the next one for me, Chris, if we look at this word forgiveness, surely that includes like the forgiveness of sin. That's important. But I want us to way broaden our understanding of what forgiveness means in this pattern. Forgiveness is where something is given for us that we cannot give to ourselves. We would have grabbed it from the tree a long time ago if we could have. If we had the resources or the willpower or the wisdom to escape the wilderness on our own, we would have done so a long time ago. But we are stuck and something must be given for us. If there were any other savior to save us from the force of sin and death, we would have seized it long before that night in Bethlehem. We wouldn't have needed all those other books. But we had to get totally stuck, totally lost, totally unsure. And the story is this, we cannot get back to Eden. We can't find our way there. There's angels and flashing swords that are blocking us, and we cannot get back to the Father's house. It's just too far for our malnourished heart. We cannot make it back to God, and so God will have to make it to us. And so the third part of the pattern is that something is given for us. Forgiveness is the fulcrum on which the entire story swings. It is where we finally confess that if our story is going to continue... If we are going to be saved, it is because there is a saving kind of God who can do for me what I cannot do for myself. And so we come to the final giving up of our efforts and our energies and our rightness and our salvation and survival strategies just in time to receive the gift of God being born into a wilderness-weary world. Advent. Epiphany, Christmas, Emmanuel, God shows up with us in it. And Christ is born into our sin spiral, into our exile, into our far country. And the epiphany of Christ restories everything. If you remember through the season of Epiphany, we walked through all the things that are suddenly made new in the light of Christ. And our story is born again, a birth, a life, a way, a death a resurrection, a king, and a kingdom. And this is the high water mark of the entire story. It is the redemption moment. It's the tear-stained page where the story turns. This is the child who is headed home, convinced that the only future left for him is to be a slave. He's lost his birthright. It is the moment, as Lin-Manuel Miranda says, that you're in so deep it seems easier to just swim down. It's the final admission that if the story's going to continue, another way that I cannot see is going to be required. And at that moment, you look up and you see a father who saw you when you were still a long way off, and he's running towards you, and he's hiked up his tunic, and he's on a sprint to reach the dirty and depleted child and wrap him up or wrap her up safe and warm in his loving arms. Forgiveness. Can you imagine? And it brings us into the final act, into wholeness, into the final words, the last words. And the first thing we learned about God way back in the beginning of the story is that God is a creator. In the beginning, God created. But here's a question for us. When did Thomas Edison create the light bulb? Was it the first time he tried? Y'all know the story, right? I don't know how many times it took the guy, but he tried an awful lot. 
But I propose that Thomas Edison did not create the light bulb until he finished the light bulb. And so if God is creator, he isn't actually creator until he finishes creation. And God is not going to give up on the creation he started. He will stay with it. He will bring it home until the telos is reached, until the light shines bright. And so then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. God himself will be with them. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. And look, there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I make all things new. And God creates creation again. And he brings the story that had a beloved beginning into a whole consummation. And wholeness, what the scriptures call shalom, is the increasing appropriation and actualization of all the belovedness that was spoken over us in the beginning. And so what the wilderness shattered in your story and what it divided inside of you is now finally taken up into larger hands and rearranged into a healing array. Wholeness means that we have changed even if the circumstances of our life have not changed. It's not just getting back to Eden. It's not just getting back to where things were simple. We can't get back there. The story does not go back to Eden. Revelation does not end in Eden. There's got to be a different future now. And the story instead is deeper than the mere erasing of pain or the easing of difficulty. It is God taking all that was shattered and went wrong in your life and in your story and in the great story and using that as part of the healing process. It's all that went wrong getting caught up and brought into a current of redemption. The father in the prodigal story cannot erase the journey the child has been on. He cannot go back to before the child ever left home. But what makes the homecoming so rich, the love so strong, the story so big, is that the, the homecoming happens. And the father's arms are wrapped around the child, and the wilderness part of the journey is still there, but it is brought into a wholeness. And the scars remain just like they did for Jesus, but the scars become the defining points of resurrection in our lives. And so wholeness is not found in a life or a story that was never broken, but in belovedness that was once misplaced and now has been masterfully brought back together in redemptive healing. About a year ago, and we'll end with this, we talked about kintsugi, this Eastern art, beautiful form of redemption where what was broken is brought into the hands of a master artisan. When lacquer is put on the edges and the cracks and all that was shattered is held back together and the fractures are mended, but rather than hide the flaws, the artist uses a gold dust to accentuate them. Puts gold on the edges of the crack, it actually adds greater value to the piece than when it began while still speaking its full history and voicing its full story. And I think something like this is what wholeness means in the Christian story. We are brought back together and healed. And in the hands of a still creating God, I want to ask you, 
might your story still be made new? And might you learn to treasure the fractures that God is still in the process of repairing? Because if you follow Jesus, you might expect to go through seasons of belovedness and wilderness and forgiveness and wholeness. It will happen. But the last words in God's story are good words. God knows how to tell a good ending. And so the story ends with a party, with a great feast, with a celebration, with a homecoming, where what was lost is found and what was dead has come back to life. And Julian of Norwich heard it well. Jesus answered with these words and said, It was necessary that there should be sin, but all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. So friends, as we close, I want to say that there are so many stories out there. There's some good stories out there. This is the story that deserves our hearts. And it turns out that the telos of all history was right in front of us the whole time. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the telos, Christ says. In our big enough story, the beginning was Jesus. And the end is Jesus. And the revelation is Jesus. And the gate is Jesus. And the tree of life is the cross of Jesus. And the invitation to come home comes from the spirit of Jesus. I love how Ken Wilson wraps up the whole story. He says, this is the story of the good news, of our exile from God, from ourselves, from others. It's ending thanks to the great rescue. God has entered the human condition once and for all through his beloved son to reconcile and redeem us by his living dying, his bodily resurrection, his ascension, his spirit infusion, his future judgment. And Jesus is gathering communities of disciples to bear witness to the future glorious reign of God breaking into the present, empowering us to work toward the day when heaven and earth are once again fully integrated into a new creation, which through Jesus has already begun. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. This is a big enough story, and it leads us to a place where we can finally pray the great prayer, glory be to the Father and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was way back in the beginning when overflowing love crashed into our creation, as it is now, because Christ's kingdom is here, and as it ever shall be, because God's kingdom of wholeness is a world without end. Amen. Amen. Jesus, lead us into this kind of a story. Let it shape and define our lives. We trust you to end the story that you have begun, to finish the good work that you have started. Be the telos of our lives. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.